Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Broadway Curtain. And make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. And you kids, follow us on Instagram at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to all of our episodes, old and new, on the Broadway Podcast Network, iTunes, and Spotify. For over 60 years, today's guest has been a leading force in the experimental theater movement, exposing new depths to classical pieces while inspiring countless artists to embrace a new form of storytelling and rehearsal methodologies. Mm. Some of his many accomplishments include having created the Manhattan Project, one of the world's most notable avant-garde theaters, uh, studying at the Neighborhood Playhouse and the Berliner Ensemble, being the Associate Artistic Director of the Seattle Rep, founding Philadelphia's Theater of the Living Arts, creating seminal productions of Endgame, Alice in Wonderland, Uncle Vanya, A Master Builder, and so many more. Yet, he is perhaps best known for his collaborations with Wallace Shawn, which yielded one of the most memorable cinematic experiences of all time, My Dinner with Andre. Plus, he has smiled on us once again by creating, along with Todd London, one of the most fascinating memoirs we have ever read, entitled, This Is Not My Memoir. I cannot think of a better title, which is now available for purchase. To tell us what it was like to work with such legends as Jersey Grotowski, Lee Strasberg, Gregory Peck, George Gaines, Neil Simon, Julianne Moore, Eugene Lee, and so many more, here is everyone's favorite dinner companion, Andre Gregory. Mr. Gregory, how are you today? What a nice introduction. <laughs> what, what a nice legacy you have. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I think, oh, I forget his name. He was a very famous director. Oh, Moss Hart. Moss who, Hart, yes. Yeah, who I think lived into his hundreds. He said the secret to success is when you're young, there are so many people that want to take a piece of that pie. But if you only survive, don't go insane. Stay in the theater <laughs> long enough. Uh, all your competition will either have gone insane, committed suicide, or gone to the Balkans to direct ballets. And you will be left with the pie. So, you know... When you get into your 80s, I guess it's true. Okay. What, what a rich piece of advice to give, one, one that I thoroughly enjoy because it mentions pie. Mr. Gregory, you seem like an individual, correct me if I'm wrong, that enjoys the process of looking forward to, to new projects, to new experiences, to new adventures. Um, what prompted you to look back on your life to create this memoir? Well, you know, uh, I did say that the one thing I would never, ever do is write a memoir. Yes. People kept saying to me, you must write a memoir, you know. And uh, I guess I didn't like the idea of a memoir because it is looking back, mm -hmm. and I do like to live in the present. But I went out for lunch with the son of a woman I was madly in love with in college who was in love with somebody else. But we did become very dear friends. And so I knew her son. And at lunch, I was telling a story. And he said, you should write a memoir. Hmm. He was a writer. He was a successful writer with a bestseller. 
And I said, oh, who would ever publish a memoir of mine? And he said, I would. And it turned out he was an editor, a big editor from Farrar, Strauss, Giroux. And he offered me an advance. And suddenly I was trapped. I had to write a memoir. <laughs> Just like that. They got you. Yeah. But I always like to do something I've never done before. So even though it was very, very hard. Why? Why was it hard? Um, well, there was no, there was no problem um, putting down stories because I love stories and I have a thousand of them. Uh, but structuring it into something that made sense was very hard. And I think one of the interesting things we've done is it's not just a memoir looking back. It's almost a novel about an angry, frustrated um, young man who is always blowing up theaters and getting in trouble, who over time turns into a rather gentle, loving character and uh, at peace with himself. So uh, it's the story of how he gets from A to B mm -hmm. and how you can change in life and transform. I think that's part of what I now like about the book, but it was it was hard to find the structure. I can imagine. I can imagine. It sounds like you didn't know that it was, uh, almost that you didn't know it was going to be that way when you even started writing it. You know what I mean? That it, it, through the, the process of doing it helped create that structure, if that makes sense at all. You know, that, yeah, it does. No, that you didn't true. know that it was going to be that until you actually went. No, no. We're lucky that you got, you had that meeting and it, you know, that otherwise we never would have had this journey because <laughs> you're right. It is a beautiful journey. Question is, is that sort of renegade, you know, the earlier starting character, is, is he still there in you? I mean, is it, is it, do you still feel that, you know, cause now you're saying tender and loving, but was, was, was the loving guy there too? Or is it just sort of like you saw more of it? Do you know what I'm trying to ask here? Like, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. No, I, I know you can ask any personal question you like. Uh, no, I think now um, I don't get angry at work. I don't get angry at people mm. uh, close to me. Uh, I get infuriated when I read the paper in the morning. Well, in fact, this morning, I made a resolution that I wouldn't read the paper anymore. It's too disturbing. Mm -hmm. um, that fills me with rage. But that's not really the old guy. That's, um, that's somebody who's always been politically involved. Right. And it's not so much rage as outrage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I hear that. The, that angry young man uh, that you discuss so brilliantly in the book of somebody who's going around and blowing up theatrical institutions. Um, where did where did the anger come from? Where do you think that anger emanated from? You know, there was a, there was a movie, um, a kind of schlocky movie I liked as a kid uh, about two parents and a young boy who are flying over Africa. And the plane crashes, the parents died, and he was brought up by apes. That was sort of my childhood. <laughs> it was 
completely unloving. There was no tenderness. Um, and then I, I'm sure this is something, um, well, I know gay friends of mine have described it a bit this way. It's, it's like you're wandering around childhood in a completely foreign world mm -hmm. that has nothing to do with you. And you begin to lash out because you're so afraid. Mm -hmm. So, it, it, you know, I, I sometimes say that I was brought up by Macbeth and Lady Macbeth. <laughs> and there's a little bit of truth to that. I don't, I don't resent it anymore. I've, uh, you know, because now I'm older than they are were when they died right. so it's long in the past but I think it was that childhood and and what do you think caused your your parents to have that sort of coolness or that shield in front of them a generational or their experiences or well it was partly generational um you know there was this feeling children are seen but not heard right and women had children but didn't necessarily want them mm -hmm. uh and then my parents you know they they had to flee the soviet union they had to flee nazi germany um when when they were in france which was about to fall to the nazis they probably felt the way we do at the thought that perhaps trump might take over right. again yeah, yeah. So their lives were very, very hard, and they didn't have much time for children. And, you know, I, I, it's so interesting that you say, you know, you went to this lashing out. Um, did you ever once try to seek love or try to seek comfort before you went to the, the lashing out phase? Yeah, but I often say that when it came to, that I was a paraplegic in the art of loving. Mm. I hadn't been taught how to love. Right. So I would reach out to different women, including my wife. Um, but I just didn't know how to do it. Mm. And, and of course, of course, if if you have been brought up without love, you'll have a tendency to choose people who can't love or who have trouble loving. Very yeah. It feels familiar that you know, you know that yeah, you know those right. rhythms. Yeah. Um, what made you get interested in theater specifically out of all the arts? Oh, that's a wonderful story. When <laughs> when when I was 14, we lived in a building in New York with an elevator man who was a bookie. And I started to take my allowance and bet on the races. And I won the daily double. I think that's what is that? You got you've got both horses and two races. Or yes. Something. Okay. So I made a couple of hundred dollars uh, off my fifty cents a week allowance. And there was a radio program that I loved called the United States Steel Hour. It was a drama. So. With my $200, I bought shares of United States Steel, and the shares split. So I don't remember how much I had, but for a 14-year-old, it was a lot. You did very well. <laughs> and then my parents took me to a Broadway matinee of a play called Ondine with an actress who was making her debut in the theater. 
called Audrey Hepburn, oh. who I think was about 16 or something at the wow. time. And I fell so madly in love with Audrey Hepburn that with my ill-got gains, I would send her a rose every night anonymously with the same note, I love you. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of roses. And then many years later, we were performing, many years later, Alice in Wonderland at the Spoleto Festival. Mm-hmm. Um, and after the show, a young woman who was clearly Audrey Hepburn's daughter, looked like her, sounded like her, came up to say how much she'd loved the show. And I, I said, surely people have told you you have an uncanny resemblance to Audrey Hepburn. And she said, that's because I am Audrey Hepburn. <laughs> and we went out for tea together in this over this Italian piazza. Oh and towards the end of tea, she, I said to her, you know, I'm sure you would never, never remember this, but years ago when she said, oh my God, are you the one? I've been waiting all these years to meet you. Uh, but it, it was, I think it was seeing Audrey Hepburn in the theater <laughs> yeah. that first got me interested in theater. I think that would do that to anyone. What a romantic, what a romantic man, Andre, and what a romantic story. Oh, yes. I am one of the great romantics. Oh. <laughs> I think that's so, so clear in, in, your, in your memoir, how much you loved Chiquita and how much you love your present wife. It's just very beautiful. Very, very beautiful. So you, you, you fall madly in love with Audrey Hepburn. This is what gets you into the theater. Where do you begin? Do you start working in theatrical institutions? Do you go off to college? Well, I went off to college where I did a lot of acting. Hmm. And then when I got out of college, I got a job as an assistant stage manager. I was a terrible, terrible stage manager at New York City Center. Oh, yeah. Which had revivals every year of great Broadway musicals, uh, generally redirected by the original directors, Jerry Robbins, Moss Hart. So uh, working as an assistant stage manager, I decided I wanted to direct musicals on Broadway. Now, as you know from my book, somehow I went astray. Oh, a little, a little, yes. <laughs> Never got to the musical. Although, although... Um, I suppose if I had the time and the energy and the peculiar practical necessities needed, I would still love to direct Gypsy. Tell us more. Please tell uh, us more. Yeah. I would love uh, to see your production of Gypsy. <laughs> well, it, it, you know, it's a great musical, and it reminds me a lot of the Brecht play Mother Courage. Yes, uh, yeah. And, of course, the mother in Gypsy is quite a bit like my own mother. Mm. Uh, but I, I I, love the book. I love the music. I don't know. It's just something I would love to do. I would lo- love to see that. Were your parents supportive of you forging an artistic path for yourself? Did they notice? I, uh, <laughs> no, they didn't notice. Uh, but uh, my mother said, if you go into the theater, your father will have a heart attack. Classic. Yeah. And um, 
Uh, no, they could not have been less supportive. They hated the thought of my going into the theater, even though, strangely enough, they had many friends who were in the theater. And oh, right. And, and would socialize and have parties. And uh, when, you know, when you guys would go to L.A. and it was, you know, yeah. it was, they were hobnobbing with like movie stars a lot. Yes, a lot. <laughs> uh, Abbott and Costello, the Marx right. brothers. Uh, but they didn't want their son to do it. They thought uh, it's a terrible profession. You'll never make a living, you know. So, no, they, they weren't supportive. In fact, um, I don't know if this is in the book or not, but um, when my father was in his 80s and I'd already brought out my dinner with Andre, um, we had yet another one of our terrible fights. And Chiquita went over to him, his place, you know, to make sure he was okay and everything. And he said, I don't understand why Andre gets so upset. What's his problem with me? What, what, why does he blow up at me? And my wife said, you know, I think sometimes he thinks you don't respect him. Mm. And my father said, don't respect him. Of course I respect him. He could have been a great lawyer. <laughs> that, 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 that is in the book. And it's a, it's a very revealing moment. It's a very revealing moment. Um, I'm sorry. If you saw, if you saw uh, the documentary about Woody Allen's musical group going on tour. Yes, Wild Man Blues. Yeah, wonderful film. Yeah. He visits his father and remember the director says you must be very proud of your son. Mm-hmm. He said, well, sort of, but you know, he would have been a great dentist. Yes. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Something um, about that generation, yeah. Yeah, and for our listeners, if you've not seen Wild Man Blues, uh, please, please watch it. It's a fabulous documentary. Yeah. Um, so how do you go from, uh, you know, stage manager at City Center to going over to Europe and discovering a whole new way of creating theater? Well, I don't, you probably, you're too young to remember Harold Clorman, but he was... Right. The, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he was a great critic, a wonderful writer, a wonderful director. And we knew each other. And he once said, Andre Gregory, like me, is like those Mexican peasants that will walk up the steps of a cathedral on their knees to pray at the altar. And he'll always go with his great theater. So I always had this instinct and I would just leap in. You know, if I heard of Brecht or Grotowski, I would just go find them and see their work. But how did you, you know, nowadays, you know, if you're a student of the theater, you can go online and you can Google search and it's very easy. I imagine figuring out who the leaders in, in creating new theater in the world were it was a little difficult. I mean, how did you seek them out? How did you figure out, you know, who, who's the person that decides like, this is like the great creators of the day, you know, how did you find them? You have to go by instinct or what Jung calls synchronicity. In other mm-hmm. words, um, if somebody says, you've got to read the grapes of wrath. And then three weeks later, you see the grapes of wrath in the window of a bookstore And then two weeks later, you see an article about the grapes of wrath in the newspaper. 
I think maybe I'd better read The Grapes of Wrath. <laughs> you know, so uh, my mother, interestingly enough, was the first one who said she'd seen Grotowski's work at the Spoleto Festival in wow. Italy. Oh, and wow. Raving about it. Um, Ellen Stewart, who was the great founder of La Mama, Mm-hmm. came to see a production of mine in Philadelphia and she said, oh, this is such wonderful work. And I said, no, no, Ellen, you know, I have this vision of theater in which there would be no sets and the sets would be made of human bodies and there would be no lights, but actors would emanate light I said, I know it's crazy, but it's this vision I have. And she said, oh, there's a young man in Poland called Jerzy Grotowski. You should go see his work. So I got on a boat and I went to Poland. So you, you, go, you go over to Europe and what happens next? I went to the Edinburgh Festival mm. um, and saw one of his great productions 14 times. And every night I would leave a note saying, I would like to meet you. And finally, the night before they left Edinburgh, I got a note from Grotowski saying, I have a press conference tomorrow, but I could talk to you for four minutes. So I talked with him and he asked me a few questions. And then three months later, I got a telephone call in New York in the middle of the night saying, uh, hello, this is Yerji. I'm going to be giving a workshop. Would you like to join it? I thought, oh, my God, I think that's him. And I said, will it be at NYU? And he said, no, it'll be in Aix-en-Provence. So I got on a plane and went to France. (laughs) And that was the beginning of a lifelong friendship. For for those of us that were not lucky enough to be in the same room as this this brilliant man, what was it like? What what ex, what was that experience like? Well, being a friend was a very rewarding experience. We were very very close. Uh, seeing his theater work was like seeing Michelangelo's David or the Sistine Chapel. Um, I went with Eugene Lee, uh, my set designer. Right. And after seeing the work the first time, we both polished off a bottle of bourbon and decided we'd leave the theater. There was right. no how could reason you, how to can stay you, in how it. Can you, yeah, go near that. What What about it? Is it, can you, you know... <laughs> It's like we can't watch a video of it. We can't. We cannot go in our time machine and see it. Can you paint a little bit more of a picture of what sort of the what you witnessed in the theater? What what you know? Those of us that you know, obviously, we can't experience it the way you did or the way anyone did. But can you give us a little more insight on what those theatrical pieces were like? Well, this is. I think this is described in the book. I went to see one of his plays, The Constant Prince, yes. which is about a prince a nobleman haunted by the Spanish Inquisition and tortured, uh, who finally dies. And there was one moment towards the end where his great actor, Cheslak, would fall to the floor, exhausted from being tortured. And it was as if I'd watch it, and it was as if I was kicked in the stomach by a mule. And so I said to Yerji years later, what was it about that moment that was so astounding? And he said, well, we worked on that one moment 
for 14 years. Yeah, imagine. Yeah. And he said, if you could slow motion his fall, and his fall was a little perhaps slower than a normal faint would be, he, but still fast. Right. He said, if you could slow motion it, you would find that there were 12 separate physical movements in his fall. And that each movement reflected a painful confession that he had had to make during rehearsal about things he didn't even know about and his physical response to those painful memories. So there are 12 stations of the cross uh, as he falls to the ground. And then when he'd fallen to the ground, the other actors put him on a piece of wood and the audience would pass the body as you left the theater and he'd stopped breathing. Wow. Yeah. That, it's hard to even imagine. Right? Uh, yeah. But that, that control is created over so many years of figuring out what is the best way to tell a particular story. Now, you, you enjoy a long rehearsal process, yes? Yeah, the master builder was 14 years. Famously, okay, great. Yes. <laughs> how how do you begin? Let's go to the first day of the master builder, if we can. And your company, your, your fellow storytellers are all in the same room with you. How do you begin a first day? Uh, well, I have them memorize the lines before rehearsal. And then I just see where it goes. Um, I mean, I've, I've compared myself to um, to a kind of son, S-U-N, uh, who has planted a garden mm -hmm. and the seeds of the actors. And then every once in a while, um, I will shine my rays of warmth on the seeds or I will water them so there's a process of nurturing and it's very like fishing where you throw in a lure and you wait and you wait and you wait and then when something bites you pull it but patience is everything and is that included you know when we talk about the bites are we talking like as, as tiny little moments, like the, you know, that moments like you saw in the theater that with, where they was broken down and those, those steps. Yeah, tiny, tiny details, the tiniest thing, yeah. Yeah, and then as you rehearse, you keep seeing if the detail will return. You don't oh, set naturally. it. I mean, not yeah. forcing it. You don't set it the way you yeah. would um, in a regular show. You just right. leave it there. And then if it returns and it returns and it returns, you finally keep it. Mm. And then ultimately, you string these moments together like um, a necklace of pearls. And that's the production. <laughs> On that first day, do you uh, tell your fellow storytellers, "My, I think the Master Builder is about X, Y, and Z? Never. So come in. And they yeah, read coming old because the thing about real collective work that is so marvelous is you have eight, ten, or twelve other 
minds and bodies coming up with their own instincts. And also, I think all of us come, especially to a known play, a Chekhov or an Ibsen, mm-hmm. with many preconceptions about what the play is, including me. Mm-hmm. And so through tenacity, hard work, and boredom, <laughs> you work your way beyond the stereotype to find the unique. We ask this to, to many of our directors. Do you do table work or do you say, go on to your feet from the start? Go on to your feet. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. yeah. Now, you also trained with Lee Strasberg, right? In Neighborhood Playhouse. Mm-hmm. And um, what did you learn from uh, Mr. Strasberg or the Playhouse that you still take with you in your directing today? Well, nothing from the Playhouse because they kicked me out. Their loss. <laughs> which is why I went into the army. Wait, and why did they kick you? I I know you wrote it down, but I forget. What happened that they kicked you out? Uh, well, first of all, Sandy Meisner didn't like me. <laughs> it, it was a personal thing. And yes. the first day I went to school, he said, I thought we sent you a letter saying you were no longer in the school. And I said, yes, you did, but I think I'm going to stay. And he said, you can't stay where you're not wanted. And I said, that's very tough to hear, but I think I'll stay. And so I stayed and stayed, and every day he said, go home, you're not wanted. And finally, I think after about five months, I said, all right, all right, would you like to do a private moment? A private moment was... um, to take your mind, he taught you to take your mind off the text. Mm-hmm. You could use a bit of text while you were shaving or while you were going through your purse or, you know, so you didn't guide the text. So I was thrilled. I was just thrilled. I was going to get to do my private moment. Mm-hmm. So I came in the next day and I drew a large circle of chalk on the floor. and. Um, I had this large pizza box and out of the pizza box, I took about 14 little turtles and he said, what the hell are you doing? And I said, it's my private moment, sir. What kind of a cockamamie private moment is that? And I said, it's a turtle race. And he said, sit down, never work again. And then they just didn't ask me back. Oh my goodness! I wanted to. I wanted to see the turtle race. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, bye to him. Off to the neighborhood play. I mean, um, off to yeah, off to Lee, Lee Strasberg, right? Yeah. The great thing about the actors' studio was nobody paid. That was one of the great things. Right. Uh, you had to do three auditions to get in, and if you got in, you were a member for life, and. Strasburg was the big guru who would sit in the front row. I think there were about five rows. And, you know, wonderful actors like Paul Newman and Geraldine Page would get up and do scenes. Mm-hmm. And I think the most important thing I learned from Strasburg and from watching that work is that the theater belongs to the actor, not to the director. Yeah. 
It's an wow. actor's medium. You know that. You know the way directing started was the wonderful nineteenth-century acting companies in Italy would have no directors because directors hadn't been created. But they would need one member of the company to go out front and watch. Yep. And that became the director. And we assume that the director cannot be replaced, and in a way he can't, but the theater is the actor. That's what I learned at the actor's studio. You know, I'm curious, because as I was reading about the Manhattan Project and Vanya, I, do you audition actors, or is it simply just going Never. Out? Never. In fact... Um, the main one of the two main actors in the master builder, Lisa Joyce, mm-hmm. um, yeah, came to my apartment. I like to talk, and we talked for about two hours, and she left. And I went over to Cindy, my wife, and said, "She's the one." And Cindy said, "Really? She just looks like an ordinary Midwestern young woman." Mm-hmm. I, I said, no, she's the one. Uh, and I was right. She gave mm-hmm. great performance. You can see her work, uh, listeners, if you see the uh, the documentary that your wife made, uh, Before and After Dinners, I think that's what mm-hmm. it's called. Uh, fantastic. And, uh, Andre uh, Gregory, Before yeah, and After Thank you. Dinner. That's right. Forget that, of course. And you can also see the film of the production. Yes. That Jonathan yeah. Benny directed, which it's, is called The Master Builder. Yes. It's you really cool to see. The context to see some of the rehearsal process to see oh yeah the rehe- watching the rehearsal process you know and I know that it's, you know it's 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 not it's real I mean it's like it's not you know set up in it at all I mean I love that we're really a fly on the wall in a way that I've I always wanted to be and yeah no if you love if you love theater I think that documentary is one of the most interesting films. I've ever seen about you never see the process. You never ever get to see no, the that's curtain. Right. And and you actually see, you know, much to that one moment where Wallace does isn't happy about it, but but which I'm so glad you included because it's that's real, you know. That yeah, I, I you're exactly right, Andre. It, it is so important for people to see, you know, theater people to see. And I find Andre so interesting that you you're fine with open rehearsals, right? You're you're fine oh, with yeah. people walking uh, in, watching the process. Well, you know, at the at the Berliner Ensemble, the Brecht Theater, uh, Brecht had said that, you know, at the time when a building was going up in New York, the construction site was surrounded by doors that had been taken out of buildings that had come down mm-hmm. with little peepholes, and you could watch the building going up. Mm-hmm. And Brecht said, if you can watch a building going up, why can't you watch a play going up? And from the first day of rehearsal at his theater, there'd be about 200 visitors. So I've, I've always enjoyed having visitors from the beginning. Mm. And then there's no transition from rehearsal to performance because you've always had people. Do you allow visitors to have input? Yeah, to me privately. Mm. Yeah. That's marvelous. That's absolutely marvelous. Um, one of the things I think is so great in, in your memoir is discussing um, figuring out how the master builder is going to have a, I don't want to say concept around it, because I know some people don't like the word concept, uh, but this idea of, of him being 
in a hospital bed in his last moments. And that's something that you feel that you would not have been able to figure out if you were given a traditional, you have a, you know, a, a three week rehearsal process now put the show up. No, I would have never been able to invent that. Mm. It came out of rehearsal. Um, and in rehearsal, we got to the end where he's falling off a huge scaffold. But the end didn't make sense because we really didn't have a beginning yet. Mm. And we just hit our heads against that Wally and I for months. And then at one point, either uh, he or I said, what if the master builder is dying from the first scene? And all of this is a fantasy. So we got the beginning because we couldn't figure out the end. Hello, this is Patsy Tavis, not the young one. No, I'm 122 years old, right? But the boys at Behind the Curtain asked me to ask you for some money because, let's face it, I'm quite musical and I was a Broadway baby. So head over to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and set up a monthly donation, or get your sister Bobby to do it, or some assistant. And I would not say no to a pack of smokes. Thank you. So let's ask, how did you first meet Wallace Shawn, who's become this wonderful collaborator for so many years uh, I met him because he asked a mutual friend when he saw Alice in Wonderland for the first time he knew this mutual friend knew me if she thought because he didn't have any money at that point um, if there was any way he could get in to see the play every night so this man would show up every night. I put out an extra chair for him because the show was full. We'd never talk because after the show, I always give notes. And then a couple of years later, I was doing um, a contemporary translation of Peer Gint, which I didn't like. Mm. So I called the same mutual friend who was a writer and said, do you know anybody who's a poet that could translate Peer Gint for me. And she said, yeah, the guy I sent to you that came every night to see your show. So she gave me his number. He was in a hotel room somewhere in the Midwest that he could afford writing his plays. And when I called him, um, and I think for him it was as if Moses had shown up, you know, <laughs> know anybody in the theater and he admired my work. And I said, um, Mr. Sean, have you ever written a play? And he said, well, frankly, I've written nine. <laughs> and I said, oh, would you like to send me one of them? He said, well, I can send you all of them. But you have to understand that they are the ravings of a lunatic who is pushing his crippled hand across the page. So his plays arrived and I was staggered. I don't think any of these plays have ever been done because they were very early plays. And I was going around the apartment saying to Chiquita, listen to this, listen to this, you know. 
And so I asked him to translate Peer Gint. And he watched our rehearsals of Peer Gint for many months. And of course, Peer Gint is one of the longer plays ever written. And then he disappeared. And he came back eight months later with a 40-minute play that took place in a New York cocktail party. And that was his Peer Gint. And that was our first production together. Oh, my goodness. Mark. We did it at the public theater, yeah. What um, what makes you keep going back to him in terms of a collaborator? And what do you think makes him coming come back to you in terms of a collaborator? Well, I think as far as he goes, I'm one of the rare people who has been able to really unlock his plays, uh, which are difficult and beautiful. Um, Why are they difficult? Because they're works of poetry. And also because he's a visionary. For instance, um, he did one of the plays we did, The Designated Mourner, that came out in 98. And the play's about fascism coming to America. So nobody knew what the hell the play was about. And then at the time, uh, now one sees it. We've just done a podcast of it. Now one sees it and realizes it's a visionary work. And then his next play, Grasses of a Thousand Colors, is about people on the planet dying from food poisoning because a capitalist has tried to find a shortcut uh, or something. And, you know, people at the time either didn't know about climate change or they didn't want to know about it. So yet again, when it first came out, nobody was quite sure what it was about. Right, what to do with this, yeah. We should probably talk about this seminal work of Alice in Wonderland that... Mr. Sean kept coming back to, but thousands of people kept coming back to. I mean, this was a, a massive movement. How did Alice in Wonderland come to be? Yeah, because Alice, uh, as you probably know, played in New York, I think, for three years. Yeah. Took it to Europe, the Mideast, India, all over, all over the United States. Um, it came about because I'd already been kicked out of three regional theaters. Um, I had done a play on Broadway about bestiality called Lita Had a Little Swan, which made Broadway history by being the only play in the history of Broadway to close the night before it opened. Uh, So, you know, I had four strikes against me. Mm. Nobody wanted to hire me. And um, somebody from the new Tisch School of Acting at NYU approached me to direct these graduating students, which at first I thought was sort of humiliating because I thought of myself as a big honcho who'd been reduced to working with students. But we worked for two years. We came up with Alice in Wonderland, and it was our version of Alice which Ted Kalem, the critic from Time Magazine, called a vertiginous descent into a laughing hell. I like that. Yeah, I, 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 would, I, I would embrace that. Now, when you, were, when you were getting fired from these theaters, was there a sense of, look at me, I'm a bad boy, 
because some people get off on that or was it, oh my God, I'm ne- where am I going to create my art? I think it was both. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. To have that mixture. Yeah. Yeah. I think I enjoyed angering a complacent bourgeois audience. <laughs> yes. And, and some people might say, you know, some people might get that kind of, you know, I don't want rejection and, and not have the strength or fortitude to move on to the next project. Where did you, where was that? How did you have that strength? You know, how did you keep you know, going? I, I don't know, but I was always very, very tenacious yeah, and very determined. And I think that is more important than supposedly talent. I think having the ability to keep going no matter what, no matter how much you're discouraged, uh, is crucial. I don't know where I got it from. But you, but, but you have it, and thank God you do. Um, so going now back to Alice in Wonderland for a second. So in Alice in Wonderland, what you created was something it seems that you had been talking to Ellen Stewart about years earlier, which is can you create a production that doesn't use scenery? And co- yeah. and it's really the audience's imagination is complicit in filling in the blanks of the evening. Can you tell us a little bit about how that process evolved over those two years? Uh, well, it, it involved over two years. Yes. Um, but because the one thing I knew from the beginning was no sets. Mm-hmm. Um, so if Alice is going to fall down a rabbit hole... Oh, you see, I think that I think that the theater and film are in competition. And a mistake that often theater makes is to try to um, live up to what the camera can do. And there's no way to do that. So you have to find what is unique to theater. Grotowski posed the fascinating question which influenced people like Peter Brook and myself, what can the theater do without? Yeah. And he, he said it can do without um, audience except for one person. It can do without lights except for a light bulb. It can do without music. It can do without costumes. The one thing it cannot do without is one actor and one audience member. So, in a, uh, you follow me? Absolutely. Yeah. So, influenced by that, if Alice has to go down a rabbit hole and you have no hole, it would be easy in the movies. Oh, camera. sure. How does she go down a hole that you can't see? Mm. And so, you ultimately find the way for Alice to go down a rabbit hole. Uh, if. Uh, and I, I don't know if people watching this could ever find this, but there's a beautiful book by Richard Abaddon with hundreds and hundreds of pictures of the production. So yeah. you can see what we did. You know, if there's a Queen's croquet game and there are no mallets and there are no wickets, how do you create a mallet and how do you create a croquet ball? Right. And, and this is what we would solve. The physicality, the, 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 the puzzle of what kind of physicality storytelling you can employ. Yeah. It takes a lot of rehearsal. It takes a lot of time it does. To, it to, does. to discover that. Yeah. It was two solid years every day. 
And at the beginning of this process, Andre, did um, when you said, okay, listen, we're doing this show and there's no set, did any of the actors go, huh? There's, no. There's, no. Just all buy in and off we go. Yeah. And are any of those actors, do you still work with any of those actors still today? Uh, well, I, I've i worked with Larry Pine. Mm. Marvelous actor. Will you tell me? Tell us a little bit more about the uh, what he brings to to your to your storytelling that you just enjoy so much. Um, he has an extraordinary imagination. Other than being a, a great actor, uh, for instance, if you saw the film of Vanya on Forty Second Street, that wonderful beginning where you go from two actors just talking about where they went for dinner last night into the play without even noticing there's been a transition. Yeah. That was Larry's idea. Oh. Uh, he comes up with brilliant ideas. I often call him my second director. <laughs> and then he has a great sense of humor. Let's talk a little bit about uh, probably what you're best known for outside of the theater, which is my dinner with Andre, um, which... W- was I believe it was on Siskel and Ebert's top of the decade, mm-hmm. not just top of the it made top of the year, but also yeah. top of the decade. Yeah, they, um, cho- they chose my dinner with Andre and Reds as mm-hmm. best films of the year. Mm-hmm. Good Sorry. well and well agreed. Where did where did this come from? Did you have any idea that it was going to be the massive movement it was going to be? Where where does this oh, come from? God, God no. Um when we were writing it, Wally and I, um, we thought, well, if this ever got made into a film, which it probably won't, who would ever film this? Uh, probably only our relatives and a few dear friends would come to see it. Yeah. Uh, you know, and uh, no, we could have never imagined because it was such a huge, you, you know, it played in New York for I think two years in LA for three years. And I still don't know quite why. We never would have figured that it would have become a sort of masterpiece and a cult it, classic. That might be part of the why is it because is. you didn't set out to do that. You you merely were just creating We were having you know, fun. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think that might be part of the why. And you know, please forgive me because I'm gonna paraphrase this, but I remember in Roger Ebert's review of the film, he said, I think my dinner with Andre is the only film that doesn't have any film cliches in it, that it's such an original piece. There's no trope that you've seen in the cinema before. And it's true. It I mean it it absolutely is true. So that and it's still it, are you fascinated by the fact that it still holds up today? And I'm sure, and I think you mentioned this in the book, you're aware that your speech about uh, the inhabitants of Manhattan um, recently made the rounds on the internet, which exposed the movie now to a whole new generation. Are you surprised that it still holds up today? Stunned. Stunned. But um, something that's very interesting, I think, and was unconscious, I don't think we intended to do this, although both of us are quite political. Mm. Um, when it came out, it was sort of, you know, it was a wonderful film of these two guys talking, and one is uh, a weird, fabulous, and the other is down to earth, and um, et cetera, et cetera. What's happened over time is that it's become a terrifying 
parable of Americans going to sleep. Yeah. How if you go to sleep, you create the environment potentially for fascism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's it's now a much more political, still as funny as it was, but it's more political. <laughs> and in today's day and age of, of, of where this country is going, um, what what are you doing to keep yourself sane on a daily basis? Besides today, not reading the newspaper, which is probably the oh. best decision you can make for the day. God, it's hard. It's hard because looking forward to the possibility of Trump and a resurgence of the virus, uh, 2020 has become what Queen Elizabeth called her annus horribilis, her horrible year. I find it very depressing. I mean, I raise money for the Democratic Party. Mm -hmm. It's hard. Yeah. Do you find yourself in this time returning to, uh, returning to any play uh, over and over again? I know that Endgame pops up a lot for you. Yeah, I was thinking this morning, oh, God, we should do Endgame yep. again. You know, at the beginning, Clove is looking out the window. They can't leave this shelter they're in. And he takes his telescope out, looks out of the window, and he says, zero, zero, zero light black from pole to pole you know all the all the despair um of today is in that play it's a great great play yeah do you know uh, why beckett wrote that play no I, I don't uh well he was horrified by um auschwitz the news of auschwitz and he thought writing a play in the time of auschwitz was kind of obscene mm but he wanted to write a play. And so finally he found Endgame was the only answer to Auschwitz. Oh, wow. And as a play, it is one of the only answers, I think, to where we are today, mm. except for possibly Wally's two great plays. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's, yeah, and, and I mean, it, I, I'm hoping that more people will, you know, return to some of these plays, Mr. Sean's play and, and Endgame, uh, just to see if they can find s some understanding of what is going on in this incredibly odd time, odd time in all of our lives. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I hate to flip on such an odd transition, but I'm going to, which is one of the things I find so interesting when we were looking at, the, at your body of work is for all of the experimental work that you've done and all of the um, ways that you changed rehearsal methodologies, you also did Neil Simon's Rumors on right. Broadway, <laughs> which is yeah. um, a brilliant playwright, but a very commercial endeavor and a long run and a finite rehearsal process. What was that like for you? I hated every moment. Because <laughs> I, I couldn't stand Neil Simon. Oh, God, I, I love you. I, you know, um, when we went into the winter of the run, the stage was freezing. Uh, we kept sending notes to the Schuberts asking them yep. to warm it up. They never did. So I sent a note to them saying they were slum landlords. <laughs> And I'd meet one of the Schuberts years later, and he would say, always oh, slum landlord, huh? Um, I, I thought the director didn't know what he was doing. The play was mediocre. Um, 
you know, the way probably prisoners in jail have a calendar in their cell and they tick off the days. That's what I did every night. It was awful. <laughs> what I'm, I'm curious, what prompted you to, to take the job in the first place? Well, I was offered it. And um, as you can tell, uh, I'm like some strange bird who always goes for where he thinks the food is. Uh-huh. I like to do something I've never done before. Yes. But I still couldn't make up my mind. I knew the play was awful. And I was fascinated at the same time by the thought of working on Broadway, but I couldn't make up my mind. And my agent called me up and he said, Andre, they are waiting. You've got to make a decision one way or another. And I heard about a psychiatrist, a renowned psychiatrist who could help you resolve a problem in one session. So I went to see him. And as we were talking, I I mentioned to him that my mother lumped actors into the same uh, ethnic group as prostitutes, uh, psychiatrists, which she couldn't stand, shrinks, actors, prostitutes. And when I mentioned that to him, he said, oh, do the play. And I said, why? And he said, well, you'll be an actor, which your mother can't stand. You'll be prostituting yourself, which your mother can't stand. And you'll be playing a psychiatrist, which your mother can't stand. And I thought, oh, my God, that's brilliant. And I asked him if I could become a regular patient of his. He said, oh, no, I couldn't do anything with you. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you're a closet Jew. And until you come out of the closet and can embrace being a Jew, I can do nothing with you. And that started my path towards Judaism. I was, yes, that's very prevalent in the book, and that's the trigger of it. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. And are you still still practicing today, yes? As a Jew? Yeah. Uh, no, uh, I'm not practicing, although we keep Shabbos. Yes. I went for too long not being a Jew to be able to really practice. Yeah. But I now embrace the fact that I am a Jew. Marvelous. Yeah. Marvelous. And it, very, I, I find it to be the most life-affirming of all the organized religions that are out there. And that's an and celebratory, yeah. which is which is quite marvelous. So you, you have done so many wonderful things. Is there still anything on that bucket list that you're looking forward to that you would like to, to check off, obviously, besides Gypsy? But is there some sort of artistic adventure you're still waiting to go on? Yeah, my next painting. <sighs> Tell us Thank about you. your paintings. I'm so glad we're bringing that up, yes. Tell us about your paintings, and how did you fall in love with this other side of art? Oh, yeah. We, were, we, we went to the Cape, because my wife loved Cape Cod. <laughs> and I so fell in love with it that I was terrified um, that I'd want to retire, which would be a horror. And um, I was getting kind of depressed about that. My wife said, you should take a painting class. There are lots of great painting teachers up here and so with great trepidation I went to my first painting class because you know if you're a good director and you know what you're doing the thought of beginning something new that you don't know what you're doing (laughs) and I was awful in class and then 
at the end of class, the, the live model was walking around the room naked and she kept muttering, where the hell did I put my panties? And I suddenly thought, oh my God, did I wipe my paintbrushes with her panties? But it turned out I hadn't. It was the woman next to me who'd done it. Okay. So I thought, oh, this is fun. I'll come to the next class. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how I started. I've been doing it, I think, for 14 years. Do you paint every morning? Is it an every morning thing or an every day thing? No, I paint about twice a week. Okay. It's marvelous. Good. Oh, I am so happy that you're doing that, and your work is just incredible. Um, Mr. Gregory, this has been an absolute pleasure uh, to talk to you today, and we are going to encourage all of our readers to buy a copy of your book, um, and we will post a link for everybody to, to, to see it and to purchase it. But before we go, I have one last question for you yeah. um, that also is reflective, if that's okay. Well, I also want to say that you two are a lot of fun and ask wonderful questions. Oh, Mr. Mr. Gregory, thank it's you so true. much. That means the absolute world, absolute world to us. Um, but you have to call me Andre instead well, of Mr. Gregory. It's, <laughs> Sounds good, Andre. That's if fair. You, thank you, Andre. Um, if you could go back and talk to that young man who's just about to embark on his directing journey, what do you know now that maybe you wish that person had known then, if you could go back and talk to your younger self? I would say, you know, anger isn't necessary. Mm -hmm. Anger can really fuel you. But love is more important than anger. Put love into your work. Beautiful. I, absolutely. Absolutely. We thank you so much. And once again, folks, it's called This Is Not My Memoir. It is an amazing, amazing memoir. It's also going to be one of the most inspirational books you're going to read if you're an artist. And I have a feeling that this book will be around many, many years after um, we are not. Um, and it was also uh, done with Todd London, um, who's written some fantastic articles about Andre, and we'll post links for those as well. Um, Andre, thank you so, so much for, for joining us today. I hope our paths will cross again once this virus is over and we can interact in a theater again. Um, but until then, thank you all so much. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And a big thanks to the Punchy Players, Jeff Marquis, who is bringing back Lucy, Betty, Judy, and Morda shill for us. And a big thanks to our sound editor, Daniel Schwartzberg, and social media manager, Bethany Ann Selecki. And don't forget, we want more folks to hear these incredible stories, and that's where you come in. In order for people to find out about us, we need lots of ratings on iTunes. So head on over to iTunes, search for Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends, click on our logo, click on ratings and reviews, then write a review and leave us five stars and make us feel as special as Eliza Doolittle on Eliza Doolittle Day. Or you can leave us just one star and you can make us feel as baddie, baddie, bad as Annie did in that really weird production in Boston where Annie dreamt that she was being adopted, but then she ended up back where in the orphanage, right back where she started. Yeah, true story. Rob saw it. Yes, and it was batty. It was bizarre. I was there. I was. Oh, God. So head on over to iTunes and make us feel even more special than we already do. Fingers. 
You know what, Patrick Flynn? What? Beth Amon. I hate this movie. Love Actually? Yes. Me too. But I also love it. Me too. But I hate it. You know what we should do? What? We should get a bunch of people together, split the movie into its 10 storylines, and then figure out this movie one story at a time. You mean people like Keith Powell and Jill Knox Powell from NBC's Connecting? Keith, why don't you show us what porn watching faces? And Washington Post columnist Alexandra Petra. I don't know. I think every Christmas story is a horror story. Do you think it would work? It actually inspired me to plan my funeral. I dig the uh, brothel angle. Every time I think about the trailer, I'm like, I was misled. I love your use of the word shag, by the way. Can I mix your ashes with glitter? It's like eight half screenplays just put in a blender. I am positive I stayed with my ex an extra six months because we saw this in the theater. It will definitely work. What is Love Actually? Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download. All episodes out November 27th. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.